Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about sickle cell disease and cancer in pediatric patients with Dr. Farzana Prashankar. Dr. Prashankar is an associate professor of pediatrics in hematology oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Farzana, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in doing what you do and what exactly do you do? <laughs> sure. So um, I essentially got really, uh, I have a long circuitous career journey, but my I got involved in doing pediatric oncology when I was training in England, after which I did a pediatric hematology oncology fellowship in Canada. And after fellowship, the two areas that I really uh, loved and wanted to focus my career on were sickle cell disease and solid tumors and, you know, development of clinical trials and improving care for our children with sickle cell disease and cancer, particularly solid tumors. So those are the two areas that I have focused on in the, you know, in my career for the last, last about 17 to 20 years. Uh, and, um, Sort of my passion primarily has been to focus on development of clinical trials for children with certain rare types of solid tumors and uh, also in bringing new and innovative therapies for sickle cell disease to our patient population. So maybe we can start with that. Is there much overlap between sickle cell disease and, and pediatric cancers? I mean, do children get sickle cell disease? Does sickle cell kind of lead to cancer? Or are these just two separate passions of yours that happen to coincide in the same individual? <laughs> I, uh, these are two separate passions. So there is, uh, because in pediatrics, we train in both hematology and oncology. Uh, these are two passions, which, you know, I sort of inculcated and developed since uh, doing my training, but it is not connected in any way in terms of children with sickle cell disease more prone to getting cancer or children with cancer more prone to having any issues with sickle cell disease. Cool. So, so let's let's talk about each of the two kind of in turn, and and let's start maybe with talking about pediatric cancers. I I, I think that. You know, anytime we hear about children getting cancer, the uniform uh, emotion that people feel is heartbreak. Um, so, so tell us a little bit more about how you get involved. I mean, I, I know so many medical students come up to me and they say, how can you possibly dedicate your career to doing something that is so heartbreaking? You know, honestly, I feel after doing this for over 20 years that this is such a rewarding journey. It is the time that 
a lot of families are going through probably the most intense and difficult time of their life. And to be able to be a part of it and to help them navigate and think about the treatment decisions for their child and to be able to treat their child effectively, honestly, I don't think there's a substitute for that. I think it's so emotionally rewarding. It is also heartbreaking, right, at times. I mean, we do have children who could have a recurrence. And, uh, uh, you know, it is a lot of uh, intense time thinking about not only the management, but also supporting these families through that. But the relationships I've built with even the children that we've lost, the relationships I've built with those parents is just unbelievable. And after losing the child, they still think of, you know, us as being part of their family. And I think that bond is so, so valuable and precious. So yes, it can be heartbreaking at times, but it's also extremely rewarding. And today, uh, I would say that we cure about 85% of children with cancer very successfully. So clearly, we have done a really good job at trying to make advances and improve the life of these children diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. And, and I think that that's such a, a key point is that, you know, whereas many people will think of cancer as a death sentence, now more and more what we're finding out in a variety of cancers is that really we're beginning to discover that many of these cancers are treatable and with good outcomes. But you're interested in solid tumors. So tell us more about the solid tumors that occur in pediatrics and and what kind of uh, treatments we have to offer these kids, what the prognosis is. And the other thing that I'm always curious about, on this show, we spend so much time talking about personalized medicine. The fact that, you know, now we've been be- began to really unlock the, the genomic uh, abnormalities that occur in cancers, we're able to better target uh, these abnormalities. Can we do the same thing in kids? And, and is that resulting in higher cure rates? Yeah, no, great question. And a lot to pack, unpack in those. Um, so in terms of solid tumors, you know, the, uh, we have the tumors really change across the age spectrum. So the solid tumors that we see in the much younger child are uh, tumors such as neuroblastoma, Wilms tumors, retinoblastoma, so much more embryonal-based tumors. And then as you gradually advance and you're coming to the uh, prepubertal young adolescents, we start seeing more tumors such as the sarcomas. So the osteosarcomas, the non-rhabdosoft tissue sarcomas, which have an overlap with the adult population as well. And in addition, we see besides these sarcomas, of course, we see rhabdomyosarcomas, which occur across the age spectrum from childhood uh, onto the adolescent young adult population. So in terms of solid tumors, really the main areas uh, or the main types of solid tumors we see would be uh, the embryonal tumors, uh, as I already mentioned, and then sort of the sarcomas, non-rhabdosarcomas, and the bone sarcomas. Those are the two big group of solid tumors that we see. Uh, We also see, interestingly, a lot of rare tumors. And one of my particular area of interest has been 
uh, in rare tumors and I've been very involved in developing clinical trials for these children with rare tumors through the children's oncology group. So the rare tumors that we see are things like nasopharyngeal carcinoma, adrenocortical carcinoma, thyroid cancer, which of course can occur in adults, but are also starts in the young adolescent. So we see uh, several of those patients. And now we've started seeing some of the tumors that are adult tumors, you know, uh, also earlier in pediatrics, such as uh, even colorectal ca- uh, carcinoma. So oh, that's sort of the spectrum of tumors we see in uh, pediatric solid tumors. I've not included brain tumors because we almost separate uh, brain tumors just like we do leukemia lymphomas. Uh, and, you know, I don't treat brain tumors. I focus on the extracranial uh, solid tumors. So those are the ones I've just mentioned with regards to the treatment and uh, the role of personalized medicine or immunotherapy in treating these cancers. So I think, uh, you know, again, uh, the role of personalized medicine, of course, is very well known in the adult oncology world. In pediatrics, we still uh, do profile most of our patients with solid tumors. And there have been tumors which have, uh, and recently there's a lot of excitement on tumors where there's a specific targeted drug that is available. And one classic example of this is the TREC fusion cancers, where there was a specific drug, larotrectinib and entrectinib, which have been developed with excellent, outstanding results. So TREC fusion cars, uh, cancers can occur uh, sort of right from infants where you have infantile fibrosarcomas that occur in obviously the first year of life. And then TREC fusion car, uh, sarcomas are also seen in older uh, adolescents uh, and young adults. So in specific situations, uh, we do also use what the adults use much more frequently, which is a very targeted therapy uh, based on tumor profiling. And so so have we noticed that, um, how, how does prognosis really vary amongst the pediatric cancers? Because you've kind of mentioned this whole spectrum, right? So we have the leukemia lymphomas as as one separate group and brain tumors as another separate group. But even within the non-cranial solid tumors of in pediatric populations, we're looking at everything from eye tumors, retinoblastomas, to kidney tumors like Wilms tumor, uh, to nephroblastoma, to sarcomas. So how do these vary in terms of prognosis? And have we seen a shift in terms of, you know, moving towards being able to treat these children better with new therapies? Yeah, so it is a whole spectrum, as you know, you've already mentioned. I think we've done really well in, uh, you know, some of these tumors. For example, in patients with retinoblastoma, you have an excellent outcome, particularly now with intra-arterial chemotherapy, delivering very focused chemotherapy directly to the globe. Uh, We've also reduced the 
issue with long-term side effects, giving systemic therapy to many of these children. Similarly, in neuroblastoma, we have real, the treatment has evolved significantly over the last maybe 10, 15 years with the development of specific an antibody called dinotuximab, which focuses on the anti on the GD2, which is expressed by neuroblastoma cells. So now we have this multi-modality therapy that we do in addition to chemotherapy, surgery, radiation, we also have this immunotherapy that is done in combination, uh, particularly for those who have high-risk neuroblastoma. In Wilms tumor, our outcomes have always been excellent, and we are continuing to improve those outcomes. So, and similarly, I didn't mention germ cell tumors, which honestly is one of my, uh, again, a really strong interest of mine. So we do very well in germ cell tumors. And in all these four categories, I would say we have excellent outcomes. In sarcomas, I think we still have challenges. And the uh, challenge really depends on the at the time of presentation, what the staging is. And for patients who present with metastatic sarcomas, be it rhabdomyosarcoma or osteosarcoma, we still are challenged in terms of long-term outcomes at times. And we have numerous clinical trials looking at different options. Which, uh, and I think this is where uh, this is where we are you know looking to improve our outcomes by newer therapies and as you mentioned personalized therapies yeah so important um to really try to get people involved in in clinical trials to really move those therapies forward but it's really great to hear that that we're moving in the right direction, at least for the majority of solid tumors uh, in kids. We're going to take a short break for a medical minute um, and then learn more, not only about pediatric uh, cancer, but also delve into your interest in sickle cell disease right after this break. Please stay tuned for more with my guest, Dr. Farzana Pashankar. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Genetic testing can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Genetic counseling is a process that includes collecting a detailed personal and family history, a risk assessment, and a discussion of genetic testing options. Only about 5-10% to 10 of all cancers are inherited, and genetic testing is not recommended for everyone. Individuals who have a personal and or family history that includes cancer at unusually early ages, multiple relatives on the same side of the family with the same cancer, more than one diagnosis of cancer in the same individual, rare cancers, or family history of a known altered cancer predisposing gene could be candidates for genetic testing. Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Farzana Pashankar. We're talking about sickle cell disease and cancer in pediatric patients. Now, before the break, for any of you who missed it, know there is no connection between sickle cell disease and pediatric cancers, except that our guest happens to be an expert in both. 
Now, right before the break, Farzana, we were talking about pediatric cancers and the fact that some kids get solid tumors. Now, this must not be very common, right? How, how common are pediatric cancers writ large, especially the non-hematologic cancers? Right. I mean, I think, of course, each one of those cancers is overall pretty rare. Uh, and uh, even leukemias, which is the commonest pediatric cancer, we say happens in one in a million, right? So the solid tumors are much, much, much rarer. And each one has a different frequency. So it's sort of um, hard to give a number for all of them combined. Um, but I, so, you know, this is very interesting because, um, as you may know, there's a lot of interest in rare cancers and the, um, NIH was looking at developing a rare cancer institute in order to try and improve the outcomes in these rare cancers. And when we were looking at defining what rare cancers is, it's very clear upfront that every pediatric cancer is rare in that sense. But the solid tumors, particularly many of the tumors we discussed, are, um, you know, extremely rare. And as I said, even much rarer than leukemia, which is already uh, pretty uncommon. Yeah. And I'm sure that every parent out there thinks that their child is one in a million, but really wouldn't want their child to be one in a million in this particular circumstance. And so, you know, one of the questions that comes up, and, and you mentioned that you had an interest in, in clinical trials, especially in rare tumors, is that so much of the data that we get that leads to best practice, that dictates how we treat cancer, comes from clinical trials. And when you have these tumors that are so rare, that are one in a million, how on earth do we get the data to actually know what's best practice to treat our children? And for every parent going through this, I mean, that is their deepest anxiety. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And I think what I must say is that in pediatric oncology, we have honestly, and I am not taking all the any credit for this, but we have done an amazing job at being able to conduct clinical trials. And the way we've done this is through the development of a consortium called the Children's Oncology Group, which really has about 230 institutions across United States, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. And the beauty of this is that as a group, then we can, because each individual institution will only have a patient very rarely with a particular type of cancers. But when we bring all of us together, we can then get the numbers to be able to conduct a clinical trial and more importantly, conduct some randomized clinical trials to be able to answer the question of which treatment is the best and most appropriate for these rare cancers. So Children's Oncology Group uh, has existed for a while and we really have, we design clinical trials on each type of pediatric cancer. What more recently is happening now, and which I am uh, very, you know, uh, happy to be involved with, is that we are now looking at international collaborations. So, for example, in germ cell tumors, 
because germ cell tumors are again so rare, even in the US and Canada and Australia, we cannot have the appropriate numbers to do a randomized trial. So currently, we are conducting two trials, one for low risk and and intermediate risk and for one for high risk, which are international trials. So we've collaborated with the UK, with India, with Australia, New Zealand, and we are all running the same trial so that again, we can bring all this information together and be able to make advances for future patients. Yeah, I think that that's so, so critical. You know, one of the issues that we face in adult tumors, however, is although all of us know that clinical trials really are the driver of improved care, it's it's how we make practice changing discovery, is that still there is a reluctance on the part of some patients to participate in clinical trials. So if you look across the board, our rate of clinical trial accrual is somewhere south of 5%. And with children, I mean, I can imagine that parents have obvious anxiety when, you know, you talk about clinical trials. But I understand that the rate is much higher for accrual to these clinical trials. I mean, honestly, in pediatrics, the rate is significantly higher. And I think uh, part of the reason, so I would say that at least at Yale, of all the patients eligible for a trial, because sometimes, of course, a trial may not be available for that particular type of tumor, but for any eligible patient, we enroll up to 80% of the children who are eligible for a trial. You know, when you're taking care of your child who has cancer, I think the motivation from the parents is very different than maybe what you have motivation for yourself. I'm not sure, but clearly we all do go above and beyond for our kids than we probably even do for ourselves. And, and I think that that desire really to, you know, figure out the best treatment, especially when, you know, we're talking about rare diseases is so important. And I think the other piece is that, you know, parents sometimes have trepidation about, you know, what is the right answer to treat my child, especially when all of these cancers are so rare. And clinical trials gives you some modicum of this actually might be best practice, because as you say, all of these professionals get together in designing these trials. So they've put in that brain trust of, you know, this is potentially best practice or best practice A versus best practice B. And we want to see which is best for patients who are not candidates for a clinical trial where, you know, there still may be questions about what is best practice. How do you reassure parents that, you know, this really is the way to go? I, I mean, are there still collaborations where, you know, you get together with a, a consensus either nationally or internationally to figure out what might be best practice for these patients? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, one thing is that the best practice is obviously the standard of care in many cases, but in many cases, there is no proper standard of care. But the beauty, again, of having these close collaborations, working together 
in on trials means that we have a really great phenomenal community of oncologists that you can call upon to discuss and get guidance on in the, some really rare cases so i i think that is sort of a really fulfilling part of being able to connect with friends colleagues across the country across the world to be able to discuss some difficult cases i mean what is really what is fun is we've now developed these virtual international tumor boards for some of these really rare cancers uh, so we have an international tumor board for patients with hepatoblastoma where experts from across the country meet once a month and you can put in a case and they will review everything and discuss it just like we do at our local tumor boards similarly we have a rare tumor tumor board which is across the country so again people do go above and beyond to try and put in their time effort to you know bring their thoughts and their experience to help kids across the country and across the world I love that. I, I love the fact that there is such humility, I find, among pediatric oncologists to really collaborate with each other and to figure out what's the best for this child, um, which is so important and, and so heartening um, for parents going through this. Now, I, I did promise that we'd we'd spend at least a few minutes talking about your other passion, which is sickle cell disease. And and sickle cell disease is still rare, um, but presumably less rare than pediatric uh, cancers. Is that right? Yeah, I think it is rarer than pediatric cancers. And, uh, you know, in the U.S. now, with also our changing demographics, we have patients uh, of many different ethnicities who can also have sickle cell disease. So uh, it's definitely something that we, you know, in Connecticut, we see 24 to 26 new diagnoses of sickle cell disease each year and about 600 new patients with sickle cell trait uh, per year. So uh, clearly it is commoner than some of the rarer pediatric cancers we were talking about. Yeah. And so, so talk a little bit about uh, sickle cell disease and and the problems that people can run into. I mean, when people think about cancer, you really don't need to say anything more than than cancer for for it to strike the fear of God into some people. But what problems do people with sickle cell disease run into uh, that are problematic? And and talk a little bit about some of the new therapies that are out now um, that are making a difference. Yeah, so sickle cell disease, you know, interestingly, is the first single gene disorder that was described. So it was described now over 120 years ago. Um, the main, it is a lifelong chronic disease that obviously you inherit from your parents. And the hallmarks of sickle cell disease are these painful vaso-occlusive crises, which really mean that patients with sickle cell disease can come into the hospital or have pain at home several, several times a year. These chronic vaso-occlusive crises can also lead to multiple complications, including a stroke because of vaso-occlusion in the brain, uh, acute chest syndrome, which means because of vaso-occlusion in your lungs, you can also have a lot of long-term chronic morbidity because of this ongoing 
vasoocclusion that happens in all your organ systems. So patients with sickle cell disease can have long-term problems with their kidneys leading to sickle nephropathy. They can have problems with their liver leading to sickle hepatopathy. They can have sickle retinopathy. So it's a disease which has acute complications which bring someone to the hospital, but also has ongoing long-term chronic disease burden, which continues to affect pretty much every organ system in their body. So that is sort of the, so it is a disease where you have to pay attention to obviously the acute management during pain crisis, stroke, acute chest syndrome, etc. But you also have to take care of these adults and children uh, for preventative care to make sure that you are monitoring for these long-term complications and you are uh, intervening when feasible. With re- but how with the good part about sickle cell disease and or the exciting part currently is that we have a lot of new therapies which have come about in order to improve not only the pain crises. So we had, the FDA has now approved uh, several new drugs besides hydroxyurea, which was the only drug available for a long time to chronically um, disease modify sickle cell disease. And the most exciting thing really is the advent of bone marrow transplant, which is currently the only curative option for sickle cell disease, but also gene therapy. And many of you might have seen uh, data on gene therapy or, you know, some case reports of gene therapy for sickle cell disease, which is exciting. And we're all looking forward to that becoming more streamlined in the next few years. Dr. Farjana Pashankar is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Hematology Oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca.